The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. on chapter 5 this morning. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible on the pew in front of you. Uh, You're welcome to grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that with you. Uh, We're on page 1023 of that Bible, 1023. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, Just as a side, I appreciate Rick letting me know this before the sermon. Uh, As a good reminder, our busy hands ladies yesterday went to the Apple Fest down in uh, Raymore, I believe it was, First Baptist Raymore, and submitted two quilts, and they raised over $400 to the Missouri Baptist Children's Home. So ladies, congratulations, and uh, thank you. And on top of that, that both of their quilts received first place votes, so uh, won first place. So ladies, congratulations, very good job. And it really is a labor of love for these ladies. If you like to sew, if you like to stuff pillows, or if you can't do either of those, you can join me in the corner each week, because that's usually where I am. Uh, You can come Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock. It's a time of fellowship, of prayer, and everything they do goes to serve people in the Hospice House of North Kansas City or uh, specifically the Missouri Baptist Children's Home, which is our convention's home that serves over uh, 1,500 children, the most out of any organization in the state of Missouri. Quite a feat. So ladies, thank you very much for your labor of love, and thank you for putting up with me every Tuesday uh, morning at that point. Well, as we close out, if you've been with us, uh, we've been in First John the last several weeks. It's hard to believe we're already here. We started this on July 4th, and now it's September 11th. And so uh, we will end our first study, uh, John, study of First John rather today. Uh, after that, what's next, Pastor? Well, Matt read it. Uh, Matt and I and others will be studying through the first of the Ten Commandments starting next week. And for ten weeks, one commandment a week for ten weeks leading up to the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So stay tuned for that. Well, I, I think you know me well enough by now, church, that you know I love polls. And polls are always interesting and always fun. But this particular poll came out in May of 2016, and it covers all spans. If you're really old or really young or somewhere in the middle, you will like this poll maybe. But a May 2016 poll found that 8 out of 10 people found that they are upset with the moral condition, with how people make choices today. Can you believe that? 8 out of 10. And here's the funny breakdown of that. Millennials, if you're born after 1984 to 2002, any Gen Xers in here, you middle-aged folks, 1965 to 1983, And the really young people, the baby boomers, 1946 and 1964. And the really, really young people, those born between 1945 and below. Uh, I won't ask for you to raise your hands on that one. You know who you are. All these age groups apparently agreed on one question. That America and its morals, how we decide right and wrong, are changing at a rapid pace. But here's the interesting thing, and I think this isn't too unobvious, but... When it comes to agreeing on what determines right or wrong, people will agree that there needs to be change. But how you agree on what's right and what is wrong is really the question. Here's the interesting part. They found that 75% of millennials, people from 1984 to 2002, find that whatever is right for you or your life and what works best for you is the only truth that you know. 
That's really scary, folks. But all the other generations, the Gen Xers, the elders, uh, the baby boomers, found that less than 16% of that generation actually believed with those statistics. Isn't that interesting? And they found that millennials, those of my age group, I'm 1984, my wife is a Gen Xer by year, and I'm a, I'm a millennial by year. You can give her a hard time about that. But the best way they found to ask millennials is, what else do you believe? If you believe there's no real right or wrong, it's all what you make of it, so what else do you believe? And find these six statements that should really make your skin crawl. The millennial generation today says the best way of finding yourself is by looking within yourself. Folks, that's scary because the Bible says the heart's deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Number two, people should not criticize anyone else's life choices in this world. I am glad that God has sent some people when I was hard-headed to whack me upside the head and point me in the right direction. Anyone else? Amen? Number three, to be fulfilled in life, the millennial generation says, you should pursue the things that you desire most. Man, that's my free pass to eat pizza all the time, right? No. Number four, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Is that really the life goal that it is? Is that why we have derelict parents who don't parent and run off because they can't take care of their kids? People can believe, number five, whatever they want, millennials say, as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Well, I hate to tell you, even one drop of, uh, of water that's bad is going to affect the whole pot of water, amen? Friends, you can't go that way. Number six, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. You don't have to be married to do so. That's probably the most scary of all. We live in a day and an age where having right and wrong is all out the window, especially with the younger generation. But in, in the realm of today's debate, it's considered arrogant to believe that you have the truth, to believe you have the, the, the corner on the market. Scholars and scientists are actually applauded for having open interpretations and leaving things open to interpretations. And those of us Christians like you are here today who know something for certain are looked down upon and shunned as being unlightened and uninformed. Did that surprise anyone this morning? Not really. It really should not. And David felt this way in Psalm chapter 3, verse 6. David was surrounded by the enemies of Israel. And this is what he said when all the culture was against him. He said, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Even in the midst of a terrible, terrible thing that was going on in his world, David said, I will trust in the Lord. And friends, as we close out our First John study, that is exactly what we're going to do. We have to ask the question, where is our trust today? Is it just in how you feel Boy, there are some times I feel really mad, like when the Royals lose. I feel really mad. Royals, you're four games out of the wild card. What in the world are you doing losing in September? You can't do that and throw things at the screen. But what do you think about this trend towards doubt? Do you think we can know anything for certain? More importantly, as Christians, can we know anything for certain? Can we really know that we know that we know this God that we claim to worship? That is the question before us today. And friends, I'm here to tell you that every spiritual need is tackled, the big idea will say. Every spiritual need is tackled, and every one of God's purposes is guaranteed by the work and person of Jesus Christ. Everything that we need to know is founded on what Christ has done for us. That's why, unlike the millennial generation, we're not taking a stab in the dark about our hope. God's grace is a confident expectation of that guaranteed result. The past is fully covered, the present is provided for, and the future grace is guaranteed. Aren't you grateful for that? Grace means your past is fully covered, your present is completely supplied, and your future is unshakably guaranteed. 
But wait, we can't know anything today, can we? We can't know anything at all. In fact, to know anything makes you seem arrogant. So the question before us today, church, is this. How can you know for sure that you have eternal life? That's going to be our last question. Can I really be confident that I know this God? Can I be confident that I know that? And is it arrogance to say that I know that I know that I know that I am really saved? So we're going to break this down today, chapter 5, 13 through 21. What is eternal life? And the second question we're going to ask is, how can we know that we have it? How can we know that we have it? If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've asked these varying questions coming up, and I'll just summarize them for you. We started out the very first of 1 John asking, how can we know anything? We said it was by the witness of the apostles, especially John, to what Christ has done. Then we asked the question, can I know God and keep sinning? And the answer was, no. You're not perfect, but the pattern of your life shows whether you know him. Can I know God and not obey him? Well, parents, try that with your kids and see, <laughs> see how long that works. The answer was no. Can I know Jesus? Matt preached this back in July and loved the world. And the answer to that church was what? Was no. Can I know God and deny the truth? No. Can I know God and not persevere? No. Can I know God and not retain my life? No. Can I know God and believe what I want? No. Can I love God and not love my neighbor? No. Can I know God and not be changed? The answer is no. Darren, you're just one of those old fuddy-duddy preachers, Baptist guys. Yeah, I am. And you know why? Because the Bible actually says a yes at the very last question. Can I really be confident that I know this God? You want to know the answer is church? It's yes, you can. There is good news. In the midst of a culture that tells you there is nothing solid, there's nothing firm, there's nothing absolute, the Bible says absolutely authoritatively that you can't know this God. And what a praise that is. With that in mind, if you'll join me, if you're able, in standing in honor of God's word this morning, let's read this and look how anti-cultural this truth really, really is as we go before our Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I'll be reading out of the ESV, which is the Pew Bible that we have. Scripture says this. John's purpose statement, he starts it right off. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15. And if we ask, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we have asked of him. But if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit the sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word today. We pray with me as we go before our Lord. Father, we are so taken aback by the generations that are coming, Father, that say there's nothing solid in this world. Father, we are thankful that your character is steadfast. You are immovable. You are unshakable. You are forever. You are, as Psalm 127 says, we are to trust in you. You are like Mount Zion, which doesn't fade away. Father, thank you so much for that. 
we thank you that from the littlest ones up, we can trust that you are our security, even as we remember and commemorate a day that is so important in our uh, nation's history. Father, you are our security. May that be a joyous reminder today for us. We pray all this, and we ask it in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you, guys. Very, very much. First question we need to ask this morning is, what is eternal life? And just as we kick this off, I want to remind you, if you're a Christian here today, that this is the greatest study that you will ever do. The greatest study that you have is knowing what eternal life is. Eternal life just does not start when you come to know Christ. It is a lifelong battle that you will fight to know the truth of God's Word. And the first thing John says about eternal life is that we can know we can have it now. Look back at verse 13. This is the purpose statement of the verse, of the whole book. John is very clear in what he says here. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. You may have eternal life. Friends, John makes it clear that we can have eternal life because God promised it to be so. It's not a guessing game. It's not a yo-yo God that if you please me today, I will, worship, I will keep you with me tomorrow. John MacArthur, I've quote, I quoted this in our Sunday school class this morning. John MacArthur, the great preacher that he is. How many of you have heard John MacArthur's sermons before? Anyone? I would encourage you, if you have not listened to him, to please do. John MacArthur made a quote that may make you scratch your head for just a second. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Let that sink in for a second. If you could lose your salvation, Christian, you would. Why? Why would he say that? Because John knows, as well as John MacArthur knows, that if we were left to our own devices, we would not have eternal life. I don't know about you. I can't even keep track of my car keys from day to day, right? Anyone else? Or the passwords to all those passwords on the Internet that you try and remember and you type in a, a document and then you can't remember where you saved the document. You know the problems that we have. It's all over the place. So how do we do this? You may know that you have eternal life. John says that the false teachers here could not be certain, but that John says here you can be certain that you have this God. Friends, our God is a God of eternal life. Look at verse 20. John even says here, what is eternal life? John says that to know we are in him is the true who's son of God. He is the true God and eternal life. Look, if you are a Christian here today, eternal life is not just golden streets, golden gates, and everything else. Eternal life starts right now, Christian. What a great thing that is. When you are walking through the midst of a life that is all topsy-turvy, nothing solidified, jello on the tree type life, God is the one who is true, and we, if we believe in him, are with him. That is the promise that we have. Verse 20 here is probably referring to God the Father, but even if it's referring to Jesus, both are true. Do you remember in John chapter 17, the great priestly prayer? And I'm having trouble with this microphone today. This is messing me, pardon me. My thing is slipping off. But in John chapter 17, Jesus promised us that to know God is to know eternal life. You remember this. Jesus said that they would know you, and that is the source of eternal life. Friends, if you know Jesus, you have eternal life. I remember uh, being in London in the year 2000. I was walking on the streets. Uh, Aaron, you were there. We actually were there together. And uh, we were walking in the streets of London, and we were ha- handed a book, Bhagavad Gita. I can't even say it right, a Gita, a Hindu text. And I remember the man. I remember asking the man, "How do you know that you won't end up being a pig or a cow or a snake or a, uh, a whatever in your next life?" He said, "I don't know. I have no assurance that I have any assurance about what will happen." And this verse floated through my mind. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. To know Christ is to know eternal life. To know Christ is not just to be a moral person. 
To know Christ is not just to be a good church member. To know Christ is not just to be a certain voting political party, folks. To know Christ is to know eternal life. What is eternal life? It's life without end. It's life with your Savior. It's life with the one who gave you everything. Some people say that when they die, they just go six feet under and that's it. Friends, there is a choice to be made. If you're not a Christian here today, may this be clear. There is a choice. You will have eternal life, but it will be with Christ or it will be without Him. Do you know Him? That is the Christ of the Bible. And He says the only way you can come to know eternal life is by knowing Him as Savior. Repent and believe the gospel. That's why, Christian, wherever you are, however you may feel, at this very moment, God could not love you any more or any less. Eternal grace is yours now. I love those old cartoons of those people picking up a flower. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Christian, if you know him, you are more loved today, the same love as you were yesterday, as you were yesterday, as you were yesterday, as you were yesterday. Friends, he loves me, he loves me not, is not the Bible. The Bible says it is finished, not get to work. The Bible says what was done on Calvary is enough, not only for your salvation, but to reaffirm to you that your identity is not based on anything else but Jesus Christ. Think about this, Christian. If God's love for you vacillated back and forth and went back like this and this and this and this, then Jesus Christ goes like this and this and this and this. And the last time I checked, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what else? Forever or tomorrow. Yes, Our climax of everlasting life will come when Christ returns, but you live out eternal life right now. I've heard some Christians say, well, don't I just get eternal life when I step into glory someday? Friends, you had eternal life at the moment you believed. You didn't have with respect to other denominations. You didn't have to speak in tongues to get that. You didn't have to be baptized to get that eternal life. You were saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, and now your goal is to know God in ever-increasing ways. And the cool thing about God is you'll never exhaust Him. You know, eventually as a pastor, you're going to hear me say the same illustrations a few times, right? I think I've used them more than, like the pizza thing, if you've been around. How many times have we talked about pizza? KU, MU, Royals, Chiefs, I think you know me pretty well. But when it comes to God and knowing eternal life, how do you know that you have it? It starts right now. If you have repented and believed that Christ is Savior, then friends, that is enough to start the eternal life for you right now. And your goal is to know this God better and make Him known. Church, what does this truth do for you, to us? Are we excited about our life together with God? Or are we just waiting for the big party to happen? The party's already started on the day that you repented. The angels in heaven were already rejoicing. Are you anticipating that day? You know, speaking of food, I'm not a Whopper fan, but I think this was a Whopper of an illustration, and all puns included. On April 1st, 1998, I didn't even remember this. Some of you all knew this, but uh, April 1st, let that sink in on the day, what that day is. But on April 1st, 1998, Burger King used a full-page ad in the USA Today to introduce the left-handed Whopper. Consumers were told it was designed for the 32 million left-handed Americans as to not to offend the right-handed Americans who were on the other side. It contained the same ingredients, this Whopper did, but the condiments were rotated 180 degrees to make it easier for left-handers to eat the Whopper. Many of you are thinking, okay, friends, it was an April Fool's joke, okay? This did not actually happen. 
But the April Fool's joke had thousands of, thousands of customers who seriously wanted to order the new left-handed Whopper. And uh, during, people would go up to the thing and they'd say, I want the left-handed Whopper, and they'd give it to them. And you, uh, the, the article said they would see people rotate it like this to see if it actually worked. <laughs> people are so gullible, aren't they? Uh, you know, duping, duping people about burgers brings us a smile, but it also reveals, doesn't it, how susceptible we are to falsehood and especially to true spiritual matters. Friends, it is eternally important that we are not gullible about the things of God. God does not take your eternal life and tilt it 180 degrees and say, oops, <laughs> I got you. It's psych. It's just an April Fool's joke. I didn't really save you. And if you're left-handed especially, that would be scary for us. Right-handed people, we must be on God's side, I guess, or something like that. Christianity is not I hope so or I think so religion. Friends, Christianity is I know so religion. Because what has been revealed in the Bible has been given to us by God, a God who speaks and a God who only speaks truth. That is eternal life. And if you think that God can take your salvation and turn it 180 degrees because of your disobedience, then you are false. Now be cautious. You have not been with us. That does not come at a cost. You do not come to know Christ and somehow get to live this sin-filled life with no, no uh, contrition, no sorrow over your sin. That is not biblical. That is heretical. That is why we don't, if I can throw out an old phrase, we do not believe in carnal Christians. Friends, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. The only thing that the Bible talks about is someone who truly knows Christ or someone who doesn't. There are Christians in disobedience, but they're not those who are one day saved by their obedience and, and those who are not by the next day because of their disobedience. Eternal life is forever. And if you're a Christian, you can rejoice that you are held by God's saving power. That is the gospel message today. So what is eternal life? We've already knocked out the first of two points. So those of you who know me think, what in the world is coming next? Here we go. Number two, can I know this God? Really know this God? Yes, you can. You can have eternal life. But how can we know that we have eternal life? Number two. Friends, look back at verses 13 and 20. We're not doing our usual verse to verse today. We're hopping. But what I want you to see, look back at verse 20, look back at verse 13. We know, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And back to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. I just want to jump right out of the gate here with the application point, because this is going to go back to everything that we do here. What keeps you, friends, in eternal life is not the sturdiness of your love for Jesus, but the eternal faithfulness of his love for you. I don't know about you, but at times my faith feels like more like a boat, a small dinghy, uh, like Gilligan's Island type thing out in the big ocean. Do you ever feel that way with your faith? Do you ever feel like your sin is so bad, you, you keep doing the things you know you shouldn't do, you keep going down that road, and, and there seems to be no end in sight, and, and you really feel like the waves are crashing around you? I don't know if anyone else has ever felt like that here today. Maybe you are this morning. Friend, what I want to remind you of is that you are saved by God's faithfulness to you. Do you know that God has never been unfaithful once, not one time, not one second, not one nanosecond, not one millisecond. I don't know if that's greater or less than a nanosecond, but you get the point. God has never been less faithful to you today than he was before. How can you know that you have eternal life? Because, Christian, God has been faithful to you. 
Do you see God's evidences in your life and growth and holiness? Do you see God's working in your life in the way that you love other people? This is all of 1 John. But if you're not a Christian here today, do you realize you have nothing to look forward to on that last day? Nothing at all. You should hope for a longer life or the invention of a life-giving medicine because you will not want to face a righteous God on that day. If you're not a Christian here today, God has been faithfully loving you since the day you were born and before. He's given you chance after chance after chance, warning shot after warning shot after warning shot, and yet he says there is coming a day that that will be no more. This is why Christians, non-Christian here today, work hard to give you the good news. And Christians, this is what we're all about as a church, to meditate on what we are hoping for in Christ. If this is eternal life, and if it's found in God's Son, then how can we be sure we have it? It's because of His faithfulness. And friends, we've studied this all the way through 1 John. John asks three questions all the time. He says, how are you loving? How are you living? And what do you believe? How are you loving? How are you living? And what do you believe? If you pass those tests according to 1 John, you can be assured that you have eternal life, John says. But now, and we'll break down the majority of the verses, John also puts out another threefold test here. John gets a bit more specific in reminding us on how we can know if we have eternal life by the way we pray. Oh boy. Pastor's going to talk about prayer. <laughs> Give me potlucks, not prayer, Pastor, but how are you able to pray? For what are you to pray, and for whom do you pray? These are questions that John answers, and I want to go into these. Before we get there, I want to give you a simple illustration that I found a story to. Uh, just last year in London, a fortune teller, her house burned down when her crystal ball magnified from the sunlight and a window, and it set the curtains on fire. This is an actual picture of the crystal ball. And the fire chief there said this. He said, look, you can't predict the future, but you can prevent this type of fire by keeping glass ornaments away from sunny window sills. Great insight, but very practical. Friends, common sense sometimes goes out the window, but not for John in matters of eternity. John tells us it's not only possible to have eternal life, the very life of God, and yet you can still have doubts about that. You can still doubt it. But the one thing that we know is that he does not want us to have doubts. John has told us over and over and over that the way you live, the way you act, the way you believe is evidence that you know it. But equally, the way that you pray shows whether you have eternal life. Let me just preface this by saying this does not mean that you have to have a, uh, an old you know, King James only prayers, these, thou's. That's not what we're saying. But what we are getting into, friends, is basic common sense. If you know this Christ, you will pray in this way. If you don't know Christ, you won't pray in this way because you can't pray in this way. So how do you know eternal life through prayer? Let's start with the first question. How are you able to pray? And how do you know that you have eternal life? Look at verses 14 and 15 there in the chapter. Verse 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Notice that word confidence and prayer are linked together. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that the request that we have, we have asked of him. First, friends, we are able to pray because God has revealed his will to us. God's will is one of those things that even as a young person, I remember asking in college, God, what is your will for me? God, is this the person you want me to marry? God, is this the major you want me to do? God, is this the house you want me to buy? What is God's will for me? And oftentimes, Christians will get to the place 
where we will, instead of praying about it, we'll, we'll whip out a coin and just flip it and say, God, if you wanted to land heads and if you wanted to land tails, you pick it, God. You're sovereign. You do it. God is sovereign, Proverbs said, even over the rolling of the dice. But what John says here is that we are to pray because God has revealed his will. Friends, how do you know God's will for your life? It's right here. <laughs> it's right here. So many young people, especially, maybe even older folks, I don't know, may ask the question, how can I know for sure God's will for my life? Am I on track with what God wants for me? Do I really know that I'm right, walking the right path? Well, have you lined up your life with what this says? How do you know God's will? God's will is what he's revealed right here for your life. Say, Darren, well, what about questions about what to wear? I mean, does God want me? I mean, I, I love red. It's Red Friday. It's cheese day, right? Go cheese. Woo! But does God care if I wear my yellow and black on Sunday instead of my red? And what about those types of questions? Friends, you should look at what modesty is and all those things and, and, and all those things that are in here. But look, God is not so much concerned if you're wearing red or yellow as much as, as your heart beating and adoring him more than you ever have that's what he's concerned about that doesn't give you a pass to go around with less or more clothing but it does give you a pass to know that god's will sometimes in those everyday practical decisions are things that you need to pray through and you need to take because god has told us that the basic purpose of prayer is to not bend god's will to ours but that we should have his will molded into us so many people come to prayer as Christians and they say, God, I want this. And if I don't get this, then I'm going to walk away from you. Friends, that would show a heart that may not know who Jesus Christ is. Those who know Christ can pray because we who are in Christ, Christ is giving us understanding. When you pray, you're not praying to bend God's will towards you. Do you know is the greatest grace that God doesn't answer all your prayers? Do you ever think about that? The greatest saving grace that you have as a Christian is that God doesn't answer every one of your prayers. But do you realize the Pharisees, if you read through the Gospels, the Pharisees are told time and time again, Jesus says this one phrase, they will get the reward in full. What was their reward, folks? Did you know what their reward was? Popularity, promise, power, position, all those things. And they went to the grave without Christ, and you can imagine the result. They got what they prayed for because they wanted selfish things. There are times when God, according to Romans 1, will give away a person to their passions because they want nothing but anything that God wants. How do you know if you're a Christian? How are you able to pray? You're able to pray because you have Christ as your Savior. And though you may struggle with this at times, and Christian, we all do. We all pray for something. God, we need this. We need this. We need this. And God in His sovereignty is moving you over this way. You will struggle with prayer. Friends, you will be, humanly speaking, disappointed in prayer if you're a Christian. But the difference is, is that are you cold to the fact that God is your God when you pray? If you don't get your demands, do you have any warming of your heart that that might be God's best for you? Parents, I think you can identify to this. Our kids love the iPad, okay? They love the iPad. That is their potty training. If they go in the potty, they get to play three minutes of iPad. I don't know if that's great parenting. That's what we do it works. It's motivating. They, they're getting trained. But if you can imagine, if we gave our kids the iPad for 12 hours a day between naps and everything else, what would happen to those kids? They would, be, uh, they would look like most people who stare at a screen all day. They'd have red eyes and they would have bad eyes before they're 20. Friends, if you are a Christian, God sometimes in his sovereignty will not give you what you think you need because, in fact, that is the best blessing for him to keep it away from you for his own good and purposes in your life. 
And that is an evidence that you know Christ. So what do you pray for? That's the second question. What do you pray for? You pray through Christ. That's how you are to pray because of Christ and eternal life. But what do you pray for? John says we are to pray for holiness. Look back at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that don't lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. And I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Friend, John says here we should pray for holiness. We should pray for holiness. The sin that leads to death here is a great debate among Christians, but it most likely refers to the sin of denying Christ. Holiness of life is as much a mark of knowing Christ as what you believe, your orthodoxy. Verse 16 encourages us to pray for those struggling in sin. John says that the church, those in Christ are born again, should pursue holiness, and it starts with prayer. Friends, that's why the, the faith lesson up there is don't be more embarrassed to repent than you are to sin. It has become such a culture among Christians today that as we look across Christianity, that we, in some respects, maybe not publicly, but some respects privately, we are okay if people sin and we don't know about it, we don't mention it, as long as I don't know, you don't know, you can keep doing your thing, I'll keep doing my thing. But when someone repents, we throw them to the dogs. I can list numerous pastors, and many of you know numerous public, private uh, preachers, celebrity preachers who have fallen by God's grace, and sometimes we treat them worse than we do unbelievers after they've sinned. And they should be judged more strictly. They should. James chapter 3, verse 1. But we also know that how we pray for other Christians is that they should be restored. Look, Christian, you are one step away from messing up big time in your faith with Christ. Any sin in your life. And you need to deal with that with God and you need to be restored to the church. But I pray at our church that we pray for one another to be restored after great sin or small sin. There are some sins that some of you may be holding on to that someone did to you many, many years ago that you have not let go of because you just won't let it go. Have you asked God to give you a repentant heart towards that person? John says that there is a sin that leads to death, and that's denying Christ. Many, uh, when YouTube came out about 10 years ago, many of you may remember this, but YouTube came out about 10, year, 10 years ago. Has it been that long? 12 years ago? How many know what YouTube is, just out of curiosity? Most, okay, it's been that long. But there was a movement back in 2006, 2007 called the Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit Movement. Does anyone remember this? Uh, people used to go, I'm going to fix my mic again, apologize. I don't usually have this much trouble with it. But there was a movement that happened about 10 years ago where people would take a sign and they would quote Mark 12 that said, if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I'm not a Christian. And they would take a video of themselves saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they'd go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Friends, it's not just by saying that they don't want the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's by simply, flat out, through their life, denying that Christ is Savior, that they are not a Christian. And what John is saying here is there is a sin that leads to death. Do you know what that sin is? That sin is if you go to your deathbed and say, I want nothing to do with Christ away from me. That is the sin that leads to death. But the evidence that you are not part of that camp, the evidence that you are in Christ and you are praying through what Christ has called you to do is that you are one that has a desire to pray that comes from a conviction of sin in your life. How do you know if you're a Christian? Friend, if sin comes in your life and you have no desire to take it to the Lord, that is evidence that you may not know Jesus Christ. 
Let me be honest here. We all have times, Christians, don't we, when we don't want to take that to Christ. We do. But as with everything with John, is that the pattern of your life or is it not? And do you pray for holiness in your life? Is your prayer, God, make me more like Christ today than make me more like the world today? That's a big difference about those who know Christ. Let's end with this last one. Who do you pray for? Who do you pray for? So we can pray through Christ. That's, that's how we do that. What do you pray for? You pray for holiness. But who do you pray for? Well, let's see what he says here. He says, pray for your brother who is sinning. Because outgoing love for others is again demonstrated as a mark of faith. He says, here in verse 18, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Friend, a Christian who does not pray like a prince in beggar's clothing who stands but a few inches from his father's throne and yet does not ask is, is a Christian who does not understand what prayer is. Friend, you have more access to God through Jesus Christ than you realize. And when your brothers are in sin, when your sisters are in sin, when you know someone is struggling in their faith, can I ask you, have you prayed for them? For whom do you pray? You pray for those in your church that need help with that. Our prayer guide, if I can find it here somewhere in my notes, on our prayer guide we, we have, we pray for the, uh, those struggling. Number two, prayer that we pray for our church every week is those struggling in their walk with the Lord. Christian, if you're struggling here today with your walk with the Lord, it's going to happen. But have you sought the Lord? Church, have you prayed for one another in that regard? I've told you before, the second best book that you can have outside of the Bible is the church directory. And I'm glad we're going to see all your smiling faces next week. Amen? Some of you are ready for that. Some of you are not. But we are going to pray. And we have a prayer guide outside on the info calendar. I encourage you to grab one. It's last names of all the members of, in this church. Even if you're new to our church or you're visiting, I would encourage you to get one. And you pray each day, God, keep these people from temptation. Because, Father, they are like a beggar who's sitting right next to the king. And, and friends, you have that access to God through prayer. The prayer that you have is not some far distant God, but the God who lives with inside you by the Holy Spirit's power. That is the God that we serve, friends. And if you know this God, then you realize that you can pray victoriously for your friends in the faith. I cannot tell you how encouraging it is when people come to you and say, I'm praying for you. Why? Because as a pastor, you face many temptations during the week, whether that is, uh, Matt, I know you understand this, uh, you know, Matt, I appreciate, if I can brag on our youth pastor for just a minute, Matt has shared with me, not to toot his own horn, Matt has shared with me, there are many people he's worked with over the years in, in the realm that he works with that try and swindle people, basically, out of uh, products and things, and try and get them to do things that they don't need for their house in certain areas. But our youth pastor has prayed, and I, he's told me this many times, that God, don't let me settle just to make a commission. Let me settle to be firm and be honest with people, because I don't want to lead them into sin. Brother, I appreciate you for that. Thank you for doing that. Friends, that's what we need at our church. We need to pray that whatever the cost, no matter what it is, that the love of Christ through our prayers permeates that God put a hedge of protection around this person. Father, help them to be wise and gospel-centered in their decision-making. Friends, if we pray that one for another, our church will be more holy as we grow in Christ. So let's end with this. Why does John then end in verse 21 with this last little phrase? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols, because that's exactly what the whole book is about, friends. In every one of these tests of faith, it comes back to this. Are you worshiping God as the one true God, 
or you worshiping him as just another thing. Amy, why don't you go ahead and throw up that last slide I didn't think we'd get to. Friends, I just want to ask you these questions this morning. Can I know God and keep sinning? Is the pattern of your life such that when you sin, you are going to God with that sin? Can I know God and not obey Him? Is the pattern of your life that you want to glorify God even when you royally mess up with your sin? Can I know God and not love the world? Does your heart beat sometimes towards the world like mine does, but at the end of the day, is it pulled back to Christ? Can I know God and deny the truth? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe that He is the only Son of God revealed throughout this world? Can I know God and not persevere? What about those people we talked about who say they're a Christian, but 50 years down the road just say nothing to do with Christ? Billy Graham had a guy that did this. I forget his name. Uh, my former pastor, Willie, do you remember what that guy's name was? I, I don't recall. But Billy Graham had an associate that started with him and was preaching and evangelizing and doing all these things, but 50 years later wrote a book about how he became an atheist when working through Billy Graham. If you're continuing in your faith, that's an act of God's grace. Can I know God and retain my life? Is your identity built on who you are? Or is it built on Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Friends, can I know God and believe what I want? No. The Bible says that there's certain things you have to believe. Can I go, know God and not love my neighbor? No. Can I know God and not be changed? The answer is no. Christian, how do you know that you have eternal life today? Is that somewhere, some part of you is beating, your heart is beating, and sometimes it feels like it's on life support, but God by His grace keeps you. Christian, if you are grateful for God's grace today, would you say amen? God keeps you. And I pray today, no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, that you would have confidence that you know Him through these things. Let's close in prayer as we start the Lord's Supper.